Good morning. Good morning. Welcome today as we gather. It is 9.30, so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Um, hopefully everybody grabbed a handout and, uh, and signed in. And today we're going to take a look at St. John the Evangelist. And there's a couple things I was just going to talk about uh, quickly. I had a question last week at the end after class about um, what we were talking about in regards to being there to help people and feeling like you can't say no or, you know, it's hard to step away when people need help. And um, sometimes we feel guilt over that, right? Where we are tired and we feel like we're empty and we have, you know, you have your kids or, you know, your grandkids or you have um, friends, right? Um, and they, it just seems to keep coming at you and people want your help. And being a Christian, we want to help. And, you know, I always think about Jesus and, you know, all the things that Jesus did. I mean, you can just imagine you know, the few years that Jesus was on the earth, there was, you know, there was one who was always at work and, and, and probably tired. But Jesus would retreat and go up on mountaintops and he would go onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee or something and uh, he would rest. And rest is very important for us. Uh, spiritually, we can uh, we can become depleted uh, as Christians and and clergy, of course, and so we fill ourselves up and and we rest. And one of the things that that I think about is, and I mentioned this before, but in early Christianity, in the patristic period. There's a very subtle theme that they is running throughout sermons and catechesis and commentaries, and this theme is known as the slowness of God. And the slowness of God, there's a lot of scripture that even talk about, that deal with uh, the slowness of God. And if you want those, maybe sometime... We, can, we could do like a whole session on the slowness of God. The slowness of God is like there's a cadence. And so, you know, lots of times people's needs come in waves and they come quickly and they come hard and they come heavy and it wears you out. And part of the trouble, I think, that Christians that we get ourselves into as Christians is that we, we tend to adapt ourselves to the pace of the things that are coming at us. And sometimes the things that are coming, the spiritual things that are coming might be from the devil's work, right? Evil, evil creating through its own pace. 
And so a holy pace, the slowness of God, uh, counteracts the pace of spiritual needs that come, come at Christians sometimes. It's not wrong to maintain the slowness of God and, and a rhythmic holy pace. And so it's not wrong to sometimes, you know, you kind of have to think about how important an issue is. Sometimes you do have to react right away, but sometimes you can stop and say, I'll get to that. You know, it's going to take a little time, but, you know, just, you know, give me a little time and then I'll, then I'll help you. You see this with your children, right? I mean, this is like characteristic, right? Because kids come all at once, right? And they, you know, it's like, you know, a full, a full assault and, you know, you're trying to survive it. And uh, it's good to, and you know this, right, as mothers, I mean, you know this is better than I do, um, you know, it's good to kind of like do triage and say, all right, you got to wait, you know, you got, all right, what's this? Um, spiritually, it can be similar. Our helping other people, I think, is done best when it's within the rhythm of our prayer life and our worship life. And I will say of myself that uh, one of the things that I have struggled with in the ministry is I always, I'm one of those people that wants to help right away, you know, and just like get it done and take care of it right away. And um, in the past, uh, in some cases, my own uh, study and prayer life has suffered from, you know, constantly go, 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 go. And so the slowness of God uh, is a helpful theme for me because it helps me to remember that if I pray, if I study scripture for myself, that's me going off to the mountaintop like Jesus would do and taking a little bit of time, quiet, refreshment, fill yourself up with the Lord's gifts, his word, his Eucharist, and then you're refreshed and then you go back out and then you help people. And so that rhythm, I think, can be helpful in sort of keeping yourself in check so that you don't wear out and wear thin. Um, yeah, any questions or comments on that? We could probably talk about that for a whole hour, huh? <laughs> but seriously, if anybody has any questions or comments about that, please, please speak up. I wish I'd known that at work. Yeah, 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 exactly. I feel like it can almost seem like selfish to be like, oh, I need to, like, I don't know, this is like my, my mom brain going, you know, yep. like, I need to have this time for me. I feel like it's very difficult, and I don't know if that's difficult for anybody else, to, to take that, like, the time that I need for me in any area, like, whether it be, like, flying or going to the gym or something, you know, like, um, can you speak to, like, how to, like, silence the voice that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, Holly, go ahead. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard this. Like when you're in an airplane, I always hear this in an airplane. 
That's a great analogy. And you have to help yourself first. In, but not, not first, like... <laughs> to the exclusion of... Uh, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is a great analogy. The, the airplane, got to put your own oxygen on first. So I've been thinking also about the Sabbath. Like... Exactly. It's like instituted by God that you're supposed to rest. Yeah. There. Yeah, but now people don't think of you know one day a week that you're supposed to rest. Oh yeah, exactly. I think it's good for like as moms, it's good for our kids to see us taking that time too. Um, I just recently, you know, the three-year-old is like flipping out. The ten-month-old is throwing food on the floor, and I had to like leave the room, I just, for whatever reason, <laughs> and my three-year-old follows me, what's wrong, mommy, what's wrong, I was like, I just need a minute, like, it's okay to be overwhelmed sometimes, I mean, she's overwhelmed all the time, too. Yeah. You know, I think it's good for them to see us, um, and good for other people to see us taking that time, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, Holly. Um, Fidelity is reading, um, one of the little hospital books, you know, on Sundays, it's like so boring because all they do is read the Bible, pop, play, fiddle, and then have to sit there in a chair. <laughs> <laughs> Eight dollars, something, like, that's all they do in a chair. Yeah. And I know that's hard for our kids, but I feel like that would be nice for me. Boy, it would. Wouldn't it be nice to... a whole day. I know. And we live, our culture is like totally crazy fast-paced, right? I mean, sports, everybody's going in different directions, you know. Sometimes four or five different things in one day. I know I was talking to the Zellers, and they're like, and we made it to everyone. We had like five things, and we made it to everyone. It's like, yeah, that is a huge achievement, you know. But And that is how crazy busy we are and it you know it's almost like the you know the heart rate then runs like that and even sort of like our our spiritual heart rate then tends to run that way too I mean how many times and I I'm speaking from experience here how many times have you sat down to read something from the scriptures or read a devotion and you're like what did I just read you know, and then you do it again and you're like, oh, wait, I got to do it again. You know, I, it, you know, it's and this is part of the problem that, you know, having such a fast paced society creates, because I know for me, I sit down and I have a little bit of quiet and I'm like, OK, I'm going to read this psalm and I start reading the psalm. And the next thing I know is I'm thinking about something that I have to do work related or I got to send an email or, oh yeah, I got to get this done. And I have no clue what I just read. And so, you know, there's something, so like the slowness of God is to try 
to um, create a rhythm, a holy rhythm. And the holy rhythm can be simple. It can be short. Um, sometimes we feel like, well, all right, if I'm going to sit down and, and, you know, read scripture and pray because I spend so much time doing all this other stuff, then I need to put a lot of time into this moment. Well, not necessarily. Uh, your prayer life can be short. Uh, what scripture you read can be succinct. Um, and then move on. But the thing is, is keep the rhythm going. You know, so if you say to yourself, I'm going to pray at this time. This is when I'm going to read a psalm. Just do it. And even if there's, you know, bombs going off all around you and, you know, kids are, you know, getting sick and, you know, take your time, try to relax for that moment and then move on, but just keep at it. And if you miss it, then the next time it comes around, do it again, you know, and so that you just start to train yourself that this is my holy rhythm. It's to pray a collect. It's to look at a psalm or a short section from Scripture. Here's my list of people that I'm praying for. I'm going to pray for them and then go and then move on and just keep at it. And, you know, in time, it will be grounding for you, right? Because uh, rhythm creates stability and stability creates comfort, Stability is really important. Rhythm, stability, comfort. And you will find more peace in your life, even though maybe the pace around you hasn't changed all that much. But just that, that dynamic will help you to be at ease. And you will grow. Um, I remember reading one time, about this was a secular article about uh, talks, uh, speeches, and it said that the average person retains 10% of what they hear. You know, so pastors are like, oh, geez, you know, I put hours into this sermon and they're getting 10% out of it, Ugh, right? But, uh, but you keep building on 10%. So, just every time you get 10, let's say every time you get 10%. So, you know, you just keep at that. And, and so in that rhythm, you are growing, learning bit by bit. And um, I think that will be, it's helpful for me. Yes. Okay. So you and then Kathy. I'm not a naturally ordered person. Uh-huh. Um, and COVID has upended my work life. So I'm working at home, very easily distracted at home. So um, it's a bigger challenge for someone like me, not so much for size, super order, you know. So, <laughs> so coming to early morning Eucharist has actually helped me order my day in a new way because yeah. my commute used to, or whatever, I have a flight time. Mm. So I had to look for different ways because um, I'm, you might ask, very easily distracted. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that's helped me because honestly, down there in the church, there's 
There's very little to distract. It's it's good. It's a great way to start the day. But anyway. it, yeah, so totally. Like me, and if anyone else is like me, it's been super helpful. Oh, it is. That's that's so true. And I don't know if any of you got this in one of Dr. Kleinig's visits to St. John, but he talked once about uh, stained glass art and how stained glass art had a function. There was the beauty aspect, but there's also the functional aspect where, you know, you're sitting and listening to the sermon and then you're drifting away. And you're drifting away. But when there's art, then all of a sudden now your eye captures something, which is a, which Dr. Kleinig calls a holy distraction. And so, yes, you know, in a beautiful church like ours, there isn't much to distract us. And if we get distracted, there's scripture in art and then that beauty that goes with it to help draw us in. So we, we, are, we pastors are always comforted by the fact that if you're not paying attention, <laughs> you are, you're, you're still going to capture something holy around you. So, yes. Okay, Kathy. Uh, I've probably mentioned this before, but a phrase that I heard when I was younger was the tyranny of the urgent. Mm. And it's, it is a... It's a it's not a peaceful thing. And I remember my grandmother was like the slowest person. <laughs> but she got it all done. She just glided through life. And it's not like terrible things didn't happen to my grandparents' losses and stuff. But she just was serene. And I just was like, oh. Yeah. I could do that. Maybe I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she never lived by the tyranny of the urgent. It was just like... I will, I will get to that at its proper time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the rule of St. Benedict, so the Benedictines, um, the Benedictine order is considered to be a poetic order. Um, and there's certain things that they mean by that. Uh, to be poetic, because some, some orders... Like, I think the Dominicans are a preaching order, uh, you know, so they're very focused on that. And, um, but the Benedictines had a poetic, a poetic nature to their, to their rhythm and order of life. And uh, this is not from ben- Benedict, but ora et labora, pray and work. Well, you know, it comes out of that idea because... You pray, and then you go and work, and you engage the world. You engage nature, you know. So back in the ancient of days, they would pray, and then they would go out and and work in the gardens, and they would look at the flowers and capture the beautiful smells and see the different insects. And, you know, they're working, but they're seeing God's hand in their lives, and then, but they're doing things, and then they go back to prayer, and then they go back to work, and they go back and boop, 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 boop. You see the rhythm? And it's just like that. And so I think that is so helpful in a way that even we can capture some of that and think about, you know, that, you know, just moving along. So, yeah. 
Any other? Yes. Um, but I was wondering all the time when our children, in my age, we, um, I miss that they are not memorizing poems. Yes. You know, and, um, you know, we had, um, we had so many poems to memorize. And, uh, um, and I think the, uh, our children, our grandchildren now, they have so much destruction. You know, and uh, television is on. <laughs> Yeah. 24 hours, you know, and there's always something what they can find, you know. And then, um, it's true. Computer and everything, you know. And yeah. So I think um, what I sometimes miss is they are not uh, learning more uh, songs, you know, by heart or so, you know, mm -hmm. memorizing, because that was our uh, yeah. <laughs> comfort, you know, when you are just in. Our pastor said always, you have to learn, you have to learn. It could be a time where you are alone, just alone. What you are thinking then? Yeah. Is, is Jesus in, in your presence? No. And so that sometimes, um, what I miss. Yeah. Well, yeah, truly. And um, there is something about the rhythm of poetry and music, right? That you know, it hits a, those things hit a different part of your brain. I remember Sam, you know, pastors, pastors, families tend to have this happen a lot. You know, and when I was, we were in Iowa and I always chanted the verba, you know, the words of institution. And so one day in Iowa, we're sitting at the table at home eating supper and Sam's like, you know, throwing his peas and, you know, playing in his mashed potatoes. And while he's doing it, he starts singing the words of institution. <laughs> he was like three and, you know, and we're like, and we just kind of stopped and we're like, huh. And we thought, well, how long is this going to go? He did the whole thing. <laughs> and, and we're like, wow. And that was kind of that moment for, <clears throat> for me where I'm like, boy, music really does do things. And it captures things, yeah. Similarly, like I, I feel like I've had a lot of moments in the last few weeks where I've just been very grumpy, like very grumpy. <laughs> yep. At home. Yep. And one of the things that regularly just like snaps me out of it is my two-year-old singing the Tazé songs. Oh, that's awesome. Like, how can I be grumpy when there's a two-year-old singing Wadaw's game? Don't leave. Totally. Obviously, it's especially sweet, but at any age when you have like those those songs can get you out of that. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah, I know. Then you feel guilty, right? You're like, oh, geez, they're singing holy stuff, and here I am over here, you know, <laughs> grouchy, and yeah, uh, yeah. So at any rate, we could we could maybe sometime just do a full on, you know, what is the slowness of God? Where is it in scripture? What do the patristics say? And I could give you a little more detail maybe. Um, let's talk about John the Evangelist. Uh, and there, so this handout really was just sort of a, everything to lead up to uh, the Good Shepherd discourse. And, you know, St. John the Evangelist, you know, John, son of Zebedee, he was uh, one of the 12, and it is 
we believe that he is the one that wrote the Gospel of John, uh, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. And he was the one uh, that was not martyred, but lived to be an old man. And there's some debate as to when he wrote John's Gospel. Uh, I would say the majority of New Testament scholars think that it was written late, but there are some that think it was written very early. But John is an interesting figure, and the way that uh, he factors into everything. Um, Paul, as you know, went to Asia Minor and spent a lot of time getting those churches in place. Um, As we know, he didn't go to Colossae. He never met the Colossians. But, you know, as we studied that book, you could see that he was addressing Gnostic and Jewish thought forms. And so there was some contention. The fact that he was talking about those things meant that there was contention in Colossae. And he also had, Paul had trouble in Ephesus. You know, uh, he put a lot of time into Ephesus. And he even writes, well, he talks about it actually in Acts 18 uh, through 20. He talks about the fact that there is contention brewing and trouble within. And what happened was, and, and I find this quite interesting that Paul would spend so much time doing his mission work and, and his apostolic work in Asia Minor only then to say near the end of his life that all those in Asia have forsaken me uh, in Second Timothy. Second uh, Timothy, if you look at the middle of page one of the handout, In Acts 20, 29 and following, he predicts attacks from without and subversion from within the church of Ephesus. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 15, he writes to Timothy. And, you know, 2 Timothy, Paul is, he's getting ready to die. So his life is coming to an end. And he writes, you are to know that all of Asia has fallen away from me. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? When I think about this, I think on a, you know, on a personal level, he must have been frustrated that he had put all that work and effort and time into what he was doing, only then at the end of his life to see that it was, wasn't going the way that he had hoped. But the rest of the story is, and this is where I see God's hand in the bigger picture of things, where Paul is martyred, Asia, the Asia Minor, those churches have forsaken Paul, basically, is what he said. But John, his life is spared, and he lives to be an old man. Now, he was exiled on the island of Patmos for a time, but he did a lot of work in Asia Minor and a lot of work at Ephesus. And 
if, well, even into what, the 700s or the 800s AD, uh, John the Evangelist was referred to as the patron saint in those areas, like in Ephesus. The, the church in Ephesus, they would always recount John and what John had done. And often they would name a church after the patron saint. So, you know, there were churches that were St. John the Divine or things like that. And Revelation is interesting, especially in the first couple of chapters where you have the letters to the different churches. And those are, I think, all Asia Minor churches. So John's life, we know a little bit more about him because he lived longer. You know, to the end of the first century, we think. And there's a succession of teachers. So there was John, the apostle, and history says that he taught a guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp had a little bit of information. He wrote a little bit of stuff, but he was martyred. But then Polycarp taught a guy named Irenaeus. And maybe you've seen a quote or two in our service folders from Irenaeus. What I think is fascinating is Irenaeus tells us things in his writings about John. And so think about it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I've often been amazed. I think about like generations and you go back a couple generations and you're like, yeah, I knew my great grandparents, you know, and that was pretty cool back that far. Well, that's like Irenaeus to Polycarp to John, you know, very close in proximity. And so John writes his gospel and John's gospel is different as we know. It's, you know, you have the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are very similar. And then you have John's gospel, which is completely different in so many ways. And you have different themes running throughout John's gospel. And there are things in John's gospel that are not in the synoptics. And one, well, there's a couple things, but uh, one is the Good Shepherd discourse and, and the raising of Lazarus. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. So when we think about John's gospel, and, you know, there's different views on, especially depending on, you know, who's John's gospel written to? Is it written to the Jewish population? Yes, I think Yes, for sure. Um, I, Hellenism was a Greek-influenced uh, background. So, there, you know, the majority of Jewish people in those days spoke Greek. And it's also not beyond reason to think about the fact that a lot of those people also knew some Greek philosophy. And so you have the concept of the word 
You think about John's gospel in the prologue, in the very beginning. If you would, just go to that. John's gospel begins with the prologue, which is verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In that prologue are several themes that then weave throughout John's gospel. And today we're only going to be able to just kind of hit the surface, but you have the language of life. So in the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos, even in Greek philosophy, as I mentioned last week, it was considered to be, one would, would, would listen for another's logos or word or message or philosophy. <clears throat> and the idea was, uh, like I put, I believe, here at the top of page two, to hear the logos from a philosophical perspective was to listen to the speech that sanctions a life of morality and goodness. So Greek philosophers would want to hear what your logos is. What is your word? What is your philosophy of life? And what kind of life of, of morality and goodness springs out of your philosophy of life? And John is positing for his audience what the word brings for the Christian. And this word, this logos, is enfleshed. It is Christ. And the rest of the gospel then is a running evangelistic message of this is what this word brings. This word brings healing. It brings forgiveness, it brings mercy, and even in the case then of Lazarus, it brings resurrection. And what I think is everything that happens in the, in the Gospel of John is weaving in and out of Jewish festivals. Like there's, there's often these statements of this Jewish festival was going on, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover. So there's all this stuff going on around the feasts. But then in between all of that, there are a lot of contrasts. And I put many of them, or some, maybe some of them at least, on page two. And the contrasts are... The Pharisees or the Jewish establishment take issue with Jesus over a certain point and then almost immediately someone who's broken or a Gentile 
takes a hold of Jesus. And it's just over and over, there are these contrasts running throughout. So, you know, you think about this beginning of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Then it talks about life, and uh, life in Greek is zoe. And then there's the sense of light and darkness. And the theme of light and darkness is also running. So there's like several things going on all at the same time. John the Baptist in chapter 1 is introduced. And what I think John the evangelist is doing in the gospel is he's trying to persuade his audience that the enfleshed logos is the is the life that they're supposed to take a hold of. And in John chapter 1, you have John the Baptist is the persuader. He starts off and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He points to Jesus. You know, he'll have one of his disciples with him and he'll say, The Lamb of God, you know. So look, follow him. That's the one. And in John chapter 1, there's a succession of moving from one person to the next. So if you look here in verse 19, John 1, 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So he puts that in order first. But then you go down and... I guess in verse 29, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now what's interesting to me there, and this is why I think, part of why I think John the Baptist is being used as the persuader is because it is only in John's gospel where they let John the Baptist tell the baptism account. If you look at the other gospels, the evangelists tell the account themselves, but John, the evangelist, has John the Baptist tell it. And this, in terms of like, Greek philosophical persuasion, um, there is there's a form of uh, a rhetorical device where you let, you tell a story and you let a character in the story do the persuading. 
And what that does is it takes away some of the, the edge of I'm telling you something, right? Because even in our culture today, if we go up to somebody and say, here's what happened and here's the truth and you just need to listen to me, people might get a little growly about that, right? Like, you know, they might feel like it's a little confrontational. But if you tell a story, you tell the account and you let the person in the account persuade you or persuade the person. It takes away some of the the hard edge to it, yeah. It's interesting, I never really thought about that, like realize a job of this perhaps later in this life. But when you think about when you're trying to tell something like quickly, you probably don't take the time to tell it as a story because it takes a little bit longer. Um, and I just quickly looked at just like the first chapter of Matthew, Luke, and Mark, and they just like jump right in to like tell you the facts. Um, interesting. You know, it's almost like they were communicating it more urgently. and. John maybe had a time thinking about it, you know, and he's had a chance to... That's a good point. And, and it really kind of changes the way I look at the beginning of each of the Gospels now in that light. Yeah. I had listened to a podcast once and they said that, you know, it's like the procrastination is a really bad thing. But they said it's not necessarily bad. You don't want to procrastinate the way you get the assignment and you don't look at it until the night before. But they said procrastinators who look at the assignment right when they get it, but then don't do it till the night before... They've been thinking about it, even subconsciously, that whole time. So sometimes they come up with a better product than the person who writes it right away, just because they had time to ruminate on it. And yeah. once they get down to writing it, they've actually kind of already worked it out. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to look at the way that the other Gospels are written compared to this, that maybe there's been more rumination. Isn't that true? That's a very good point. Because he frames this first part like saying, hey, anything that like he's framing the whole thing, and I just looked at Mark and Luke, and they're just like, all right, this is where it starts. Here's the geology of the It's like right to it. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's a part of the slowness, too, of God. Yep. Of seeing the benefit of the slowness in the way that it's framed. Yes, definitely. Good points. Yeah, it, it is remarkable how they they put these things together. And like Matthew's gospel. So in the beginning was the word, right? I mean, that sounds just like Genesis, right? Well, in Matthew's gospel, the first two words in Greek in Matthew's gospel is the book of Genesis. This is the, so Matthew's saying, this is the new book of Genesis when he starts to write Matthew. It's so cool. You know, he's like, here, life begins. Here we go. Boom. And Jesus is at the center. And so with John, so let's, let's jump way ahead. And, you know, who knows? I've still got to think about what we'll do in the fall. But, um, you know, we could always get into John and do some of these sidelight themes. But uh, if you go to John and you go to chapter 10, here's my theory of John's gospel. John is leading us to the word made flesh. And he is showing us through contrasts that the Jewish establishment rejects Jesus, but then the people that are considered forsaken in the world receive Jesus. And it's just this back and forth. 
everything that happens is leading up to a definitive piece of evidence that Jesus is the savior of the world. And you get to John chapter 10 and you have the famous Good Shepherd discourse. And let's just read this in John chapter 10. So Jesus starts off in the first verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. Now I think that's important right there. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now remember that verse. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So there it is again. They follow him. This goes back to chapter 1 right? Behold the Lamb of God, follow him, okay? Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And then now look, here again, here's division. Verse 19, therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then in verse 22, you have, another, you have one of these feast uh, you know, statements, signposts. And then he goes on again and he says, these verses are important, verses 25 through 30 of John 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. 
My sheep hear my voice. Okay, that's important. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then again, here we go. The Jews take up stones to stone him. And so you have this back and forth. And then you get to chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, I didn't think about this but this has the slowness of God in it. Because what does Jesus do when he finds out Lazarus is sick? Yeah, and everybody's like, what? Right? Like, I mean, I can guarantee you, pastors, when we get the call to go to the hospital, we go, right? We don't wait. And we won't wait. But Jesus does a very interesting thing here. So let's take a look at this. Chapter 11. So Lazarus is sick. Lazarus of Bethany. There's Mary and there's Martha, his sisters. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Okay, so when your prayers aren't immediately answered, you, you, you can kind of see Jesus does things by the slowness of God. And there's a point always. So he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he's going in the opposite direction of Lazarus. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. There's the light and darkness language again. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who's called the 12, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So why four why four days? I mean, in the Bible, it's always three, right? And we know what three represents, Christ's death and resurrection, right? The three days. But what's four? Well, in, in the Jewish world, 
if you had guests come to stay with you, if your in-laws came to stay with you, and if they stayed up to three days, that's cool because that's temporary, but four is permanent. So if your in-laws are staying four days, uh uh-oh, they're not going to leave, you know? And so in those days, so, so the fact that Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, that means it can't be undone. It's, and this happens, you see this in language in the Bible where they're like, oh, if he would have gotten here when he was alive, he would have been all right. But now it's too late, right? Or uh, remember when um, the, the young girl... Uh, dies and uh and they come and they tell jesus don't bother anymore she's already dead you know in that culture like if somebody was sick maybe someone could heal them but death no deal it was all off so jesus came and found that he had been in the tomb four days bethany was near jerusalem about two miles away And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now, let's jump ahead just a little bit. So you have the same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now, notice that there are Jews there that made, that made this remark. See how he loved him in verse 36. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for is, he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. 
Now, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. That is the answer and fulfillment of the Good Shepherd Discourse. My sheep hear my voice, they hear me, and they follow me. And then it happens. Lazarus is one of Christ's. He's dead in the tomb for four days. His shepherd speaks, and he follows, even from the grave. Yeah. So I mean, when I read this, I kind of go back and forth, and I'm curious in your opinion, like, it seems like before when Jesus is waiting a couple days before he goes. Like, he has a plan. It's not like he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then, um, later, when they're meeting him, it says, like, he's so moved. And they almost make it seem like because he was so moved by, with compassion, is why he went ahead and raised him. You can see it, I guess, both ways, that either he's so compassionate and moves him to do it, or he went in there with that plan. He needed them to feel it and see that it was truly real. You know, it's either the slow movement of God or the impulse of compassion. Yeah. Do you think he set out knowing this is, he was going to use Lazarus as an example? Because it seems like he's saying that before he goes. Like, um, uh, this illness is not like that. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's almost like he's going knowing that's the plan. But then later it makes it sound like he's going to Yeah, I think that it was his plan all along to raise Lazarus from the dead for everybody to see. And the way that John orders these events in his gospel, everything that happens up to the raising of Lazarus is sort of like weaving and pointing towards the raising of Lazarus. And in the gospel, when Lazarus is raised everything explodes. It's like, it's like TNT in the Gospel of John because then the way he orders it is right after this, he predicts there's the anointing at Bethany, the plot to kill Lazarus, and then Jesus in uh, John 12, 27 to 36, pre- he has one of his passion predictions And what's interesting about this is these verses, when Jesus said to the people, a little while longer the light is with you, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is the last appeal that Jesus makes to the Jews in John's gospel. It's it's it. And then, yeah, and you also have uh, in chapter 12, verses 20 through 22, the Greeks come and wish to see Jesus. So literally, this is like an explosion. And, you know, the Greek, um, the Greek word for power, the Holy Spirit's power in the book of Acts, the Greek word is dynamis. And that's the word we get for dynamite. So when the Holy Spirit 
the power of the Holy Spirit breaks, it's like dynamite. And so we're seeing this, I think, in the raising of Lazarus. Everything in John's gospel has been pointing up to this moment to see the resurrection of Lazarus. And then it moves immediately to Christ's own uh, three-day passion. You know, the upper room, the anointing of the feet, the sermon, you know, Christ's sermon, John 14 to 16, was in the upper room. His prayer, and then, and, yeah, yes, oh, yes. I haven't really thought about this, but is it of significance that he's a Jew? I mean, I think about the, like in a lot of the examples, the Jews are the unbelievable. Yes. The fact that he's Jewish even more explosive and spectacular. I think so. Yeah, no, that's very insightful. <laughs> um, because it's usually we, it's the believers are always the non believers Yeah. I think about, uh, we live in New Jersey, and a lot of my coworkers are Jewish. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating, and the, the culture almost prevents them from exploring Jesus. Yes, totally. <laughs> I mean, I asked a coworker once, like, you know, I said, hey, you ever thought Jesus was the guy that you've been looking for? Yeah. And he goes, no, my mother would kill me. That's what he said. Totally. Joking, but he wasn't joking. Exactly. And so I think about the fact that here's believing Jews, and I don't know. Yeah. I had never heard of your Totally. And I said, it's this pinnacle. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, I think that's right on. And, and in this gospel... You have the raising of Lazarus and then Jesus with his passion prediction. And then, where was that? The, um, where is the uh, Palm Sunday? It's right around in here. Where did that go? Oh, well, it's in chapter 12. Yeah, so in John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. So right after the raising of Lazarus is... The people erupt. And in John's gospel, it's like the raising of Lazarus was the tip of the iceberg and people couldn't contain themselves any longer and they had to see. They had to clamor. They had to gather around. And so it's all sort of weaved together. But then it leads us finally to Christ's own death and resurrection which provides Lazarus, right? And our resurrection. And it's all according to the Lord's patience and divine love and his mercy. So uh, just kind of a little bit of a sidelight there to look at the Good Shepherd discourse and the raising of Lazarus, God's own time, and his abundant and unending mercy. So we are out of time. So, yeah, you're welcome. Let us close with the collect and then the benediction. Almighty God, grant to your church your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above that your word may not be bound but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you 
and in the confession of your name abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.